Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Pitko here, and sorry, a little bit late today, but it is Tuesday afternoon, or midday, I guess we could say, um, and I hope everyone's uh, enjoying it. It's actually quite beautiful here today. It's about 48 degrees, so, you know, we got to celebrate that type of thing. <laughs> Before we get going, I just wanted to say, big highlight of my last night was that I found a very high-rated German restaurant that not only plays World Cup games, but also is a Packers bar. So I think I found my place. So I think this Sunday, we got the Packers Sunday night. We got Spain, Germany in the afternoon. So I think I'm going to go there. Good looking menu. They got schnitzel. They got some good different worst types. Good German beer. Yes, it's exciting. So I know that's the most important thing for all of you to hear. But I, I, I just miss good German food. Sometimes it's hard to find. So I will try it out. And hopefully Spain beats Germany. Sorry. Not sorry, but... I wanted to start today's episode by talking about a guy that has somewhat disappeared in the void, and then he resurfaces, says something milk toast, and then goes back into the void. Who I'm talking about is Paul Ryan, running mate with Romney in, what, 2012, and Speaker of the House, kind of your traditional Republican budget hawk, was into entitlement reform, or cutting costs, I guess would be the better way. He was very instrumental in Trump's big tax cut, which was what, back in 2018, I believe. And since he stepped down, I believe it was in 2019 that he stepped down as Speaker of the House, he eventually went on the Fox News board, which is interesting because he's not really one of the radical um, kind of election deniers or Trumpy MAGA types, but he is on the board of Fox News, which has put out a lot of disinformation. So that's always interesting. And he's been fairly quiet and seems to only pop his head out, oh, pop his head above the ground whenever he feels safe to do so. To me, he's someone I used to like more than now. He's one of those unfortunate casualties of the Trump era. He's a true conservative. I don't always agree with some of his entitlement cuts and entitlement reform views. But he is a true conservative and seems to have morals, ideas. He's pretty consistent with what he stands for. I know that he's always believed in cutting things like Social Security, so it's not like these new people like Rick Scott and Blake Masters who just kind of jumped into it last minute. He's always kind of been a big fan of that stuff. My problem, though, is that every time he speaks out or makes a public appearance, I'm really just disappointed when I hear him speak. I'm always like, oh, cool, Paul Ryan's going to say something. Maybe it'll be reasonable. And then it's like, nah. Over last weekend, for example, he did an interview with ABC News, and I would say that during the interview, he basically created or invented a new category of anti-Trumpism. And it's very late, very weak, very milk toast. I could go on and on, but basically during the interview, he was asked about Trump, the future of the GOP, and all that fun that they always ask these people, and they always give very bad answers usually. But Paul Ryan said in quotes here, I am proud of the accomplishments during the Trump administration of the tax reform, the deregulation, and criminal justice reform. I'm really excited about the judges we got on the bench, not just the Supreme Court, but throughout the judiciary. But I'm a never again Trumper. Why? Because I want to win. And we lose with Trump. It was really clear to us in 18, in 20, and now in 22. CNN goes on to note that Ryan, in quotes here, who left Congress in 2019, has grown increasingly outspoken about his feelings about Trump and the future of the Republican Party. I understand the sentiment, I guess, 
but I don't really know if it's the case. This is the guy who Trump would say something racist or inflammatory or just wrong or misinformation, whatever. And Paul Ryan would always say, oh, I didn't have time to look at the tweet yet. This would be when it was like the biggest story in the country. And Paul Ryan would go, oh, I, I haven't heard about that one yet. Like, he seemed to do just this deflection of everything. Like, or actually just playing ignorant, I guess would be a better way to put it. He was very good at doing that. So I don't know if him now just saying some things like, well, we lose, we need to move on, is really that exciting. For example, also back in October, he told Fox Business, in quotes here, that the new swing voter in American politics is the suburban voter. And it's really clear that the suburban voter doesn't like Trump, but they like Republicans, end quotes. And he then added, so I think anybody not named Trump, I think is so much more likely to win the White House for us. I have issues with this statement as well. Because I don't think he's seen still the Trump rallies or the amount of candidates who ran like Trump who lost. Like, the party, yeah, there's, there's definitely more Paul Ryan types still left in the party. But you can't just say, oh, like, other Republic people want Republicans, just not Trump. It's like Trump has kind of, like, taken over the Republican Party in a sense. So it just seems like he was so out of touch. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like... Oh, you don't think people want Trump? You should go to one of the rallies. I, I just think he's out of touch, and maybe he's been kind of in the boardrooms too long. And, yeah, I have issues with that statement, and then his earlier one that I mentioned on ABC News, because it seems like he's trying to wipe off any responsibility for his role in going along with Trumpism as well. He was definitely an enabler, if he likes to admit it or not. Obviously, he was never a big pro-Trumper. He did speak out a few times when Trump was really out of line. But he never really attacks Trump's character. He just talks about we need to win, and Trump had some good things. He seems to... I guess he seems to downplay the increasingly clear picture to me and a lot of people of Trump as being dangerous and unhinged. To Paul Ryan, it's just like, well, Trump doesn't win. Trump's not, Trump's not going to win suburban voters, so we must move on. Trump has lost us midterms and general elections, so let's move on. I mean, he's not wrong, again, but he's neglecting to talk about the elephant in the room, which this guy has eroded trust in elections and tried to start a coup to bring town a free and fair election. So yeah, losing's not good, especially if you're a, one of the heads of the Republican Party. But also the coup wasn't good. Or the racist tweets, or the dog whistles the supremacists. Like, there's a lot of other things that none of these people want to talk about. And I guess my grievance with Ryan just rests in the fact that he is someone who could and should stand up and say more. He should talk about the threat to our institutions because we all know he's thinking it. He's like, yeah, I actually did like the, the tax reform, the deregulation, the criminal justice reform. But the elephant in the room is that I think he's nuts. You know, so I wish someone would just say that. Because until someone like Ryan says it out loud, it just seems like it's only the left and never Trumpers who have been against Trump all along. Mike Pence as well, right? He still won't say it. He says now he's disappointed on January 6th. Yeah, I mean, I would be too if a mob was looking for me. I was with my daughter. They probably would have done something to her too. Yeah, I'd, I'd be disappointed, but I also maybe should stand up and say like, yeah, this guy is deranged. I've never heard of this ever happening to a U.S. president before, right? I just think that if we want any legitimacy in the claims that Trump should never be near the White House again, these type of Republicans need to stand up. I don't care what Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance says, but... When the Paul Ryans and the Mike Pences say, I loved everything about our time there, but, you know, January 6th was bad and the losing's bad, it's like, maybe you should start with that. So, so I, I just feel like Paul Ryan needs to stop trying to save his own legacy and start talking more about it, right? But 
it's probably not going to happen. I hate to be a spoiler on that. So, moving on. I want to spend some time talking about Hunter Biden. First, there are some, I guess, some new news reports about his laptop. So I'm going to just touch on that, but I mainly want to talk about the investigations that are likely to happen and why I think they could backfire. Spoilers as well. I really don't care about what Hunter Biden has done, and I think the GOP is just deflecting and projecting and distracting all the ing words that aren't good. Um, I think Sam Harris got a lot of flacko several months ago for pretty much saying the same thing. He's like, anything that's in Hunter's laptop would not change my opinion that Biden is a better guy than Trump. And basically Sam Harris was like, I don't really care what's in the laptop because I've seen what Trump did. And a lot of people are like, see, he's biased, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I kind of get the sentiment. Like, And I'll, I'll get into that later. But I do understand why someone like Sam Harris would think that because I probably would agree with him. Sorry, taking a sip of water. Dry throat today, but anyways, it's, it's a little too little, a little too late. But apparently, CBS News did report this week that it conducted an independent review of Biden's laptop that's Hunter Biden's laptop, which showed no evidence that the hard drive was faked or tampered with. And the National Review, who I'm always a little bit picky on what I read from them, has an article that writes about this revelation discussing how, in quotes, that would have been useful reporting two years ago. The article goes on to, to discuss why it's pretty known at this point, you know, everything that's pretty known about when the New York Post first reported on the contents, months of the mainstream media, and intelligence officials dismiss the story as Russian information. You know, there's things in it where it talks about getting money to the big guy. Um, Hunter Biden says that. A lot of people think maybe that's Joe Biden or Joe Biden's brother. I, I think two things can be true here. The Russians probably wanted to use this story as disinformation because it would have helped Trump. And we all know the Russians usually, whether they're directly involved or not, would prefer Trump. That's become fairly obvious over the few years. So I think it could have been used as Russian disinformation. But I also think it's true that the contents are real. The contents are real, right? Like, I've seen the contents, unfortunately. It's quite dark and depressing. But yeah, the big guy, Joe Biden, potentially. I don't know. I don't know. So... I guess I just wanted to start with just that, just to add some context, because I want to be fair and note that the coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop was pretty flawed, and it does seem like the media has been slow to admit it, and it never helps their case when they do these things. If I was an advisor for, like, NBC or the New York Times, I would have said, let's not just condemn this or, you know, discharge whatever we're thinking here when it hasn't actually been either proven or improven yet. So that being said... Like I mentioned, I've seen the photos from the laptop. They're mainly just depressing, dark, troubling. I've seen a few of them. It just, I couldn't even go very far into it. It's a troubled guy. Now, I think while it's good that the mainstream media is coming out and admitting that the laptop is real, I don't think these investigations are going to pan out as well as people like James Comer, who I mentioned last week, who will chair the House Oversight Committee, may think. Now, that gets me into what I really want to talk about, though, is that I think... I truly think that the Hunter Biden investigations that are likely to happen are just, to, you know, meant to distract and they're a good case of whataboutism and they want to deflect from Trump's wrongdoings. I think the investigation is just meant to be a good bout of whataboutism and equivalency. Basically, if the Republicans can make it look like Biden's family is just as morally corrupt as Trump's was, it can help them get off the hook, right? I know I've talked about this before, but I want to get into more detail because I think it's necessary, right? Because January's coming, 
and it's going to bring just, I think, a circus of chaotic investigations, lots of fun. There's an irony, though, because I think the irony is that Republicans are wanting to investigate Biden and his son, right? We have to remember that Trump actually brought family members into the White House and also profited immensely off of his time in office. So did his family. I remember that bombshell report from, I mean, it was probably a few months ago now, where, <laughs> where he basically charged Secret Service members really high prices to stay in his hotels, for example, much higher than previous administrations. So he was basically taking advantage of the presidency to charge people to stay in his hotels. Very classy, I know. And he had foreign officials and leaders meet and stay in his hotels. Literally for over four years, the GOP seemed okay with this. They seemed okay with a president that basically enriched himself through his presidency and had kids that really just spat on any rules against nepotism, right? And that is why I think Republicans are trying to equate what Hunter Biden is involved in to what Trump's family was involved in, right? It can give them some justification for enabling Trump, maybe so they can sleep at night. David Frum has a great article in The Atlantic from yesterday. I think it's pretty spot on, no matter what you think of him. He writes in quotes here, How do partisans try to neutralize four years of nonstop genuine scandals? By ginning up an equal and opposite scandal against the other team. The Trump family may have been the most crooked ever to occupy the White House, and on a scale impossible to deny or ignore. But if Trump's record cannot be denied, then maybe it can be diminished or rendered somehow acceptable by alleging that Trump's successor is doing the same thing. And I think that's a very astute point, and it's correct from everything I've seen. But also it could be effective, and that's the sad part of it. I also think another narrative fits into this as well, and I have friends definitely that are guilty of falling for it, and at one time maybe I was as well. But this is basically the narrative that says, well, the Democrats spend years investigating the Russian involvement hoax, so now the Republicans are just doing a sham investigation that is similar. It's kind of tit for tat, eye for an eye, whatever you want to say. And... Part of me understands half of this. Like, there's always a little grain of truth here. It's like, I understand the media hyped up the Mueller investigation, and people like Rachel Maddow were convinced everything was coming down. There was always a smoking gun. Every revelation meant the end for Trump. But it seems like that didn't pan out, right? It's not that Mueller didn't find any like troubling links, but it just wasn't this bombshell that everyone thought. But the difference is... The investigation was involving Trump himself, you know, like he was president. There were actual connections. I always think of Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. They had links to Russia. Paul Manafort's a shady character. So there were legitimate concerns and issues there, right? Some of Trump's building in Moscow. The difference is, though, Hunter Biden doesn't work for his dad in the government. He's not part of the administration. Of course, he's benefited from his dad's name. They all have, but I just don't think these two things are similar. So I, I hate the, like, whataboutism here. And going back to Frum's article for a moment, he also thinks that this could backfire on Republicans because they're going to be exhausting the public. And maybe down the road it could lead to electoral defeat. In the article, another flop from GOP Productions, <laughs> which I love the name, Frum provides some interesting historical context on why discipline is important in investigations. He writes, in 2006 and 2018, Democrats won control of the U.S. House of Representatives on the way to winning the presidency two years later. In 1994 and 2010, Republicans won control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Then they lost the presidency two years later. The difference is discipline. 
I think this is a good point. And if you look deeper in 2006 and 2008, for example, going into the discipline thing, Democrats wanted to investigate and impeach uh, George W. Bush over the Iraq war. There was a lot of anger, a lot of vitriol, and maybe it was rightfully so. But Nancy Pelosi instead kept her caucus in check, kept the House in check, and wanted them to focus on policies. There's restraint. There's discipline there. Eventually, they got the Affordable Care Act passed a little bit later on. Also, this led to Obama because basically Pelosi understood that they wanted to get a Democrat in there. And if they did these senseless investigations and divided the country over them, they might not end up winning the presidency for a while. It's smart. However, in 1994, to contrast it with that, Newt Gingrich went on, went on just an all-out war against Democrats, investigating everything, stalling everything, that he was really one of the first kind of culture war Ted Cruz-esque types, and it became very partisan, and it backfired, and Clinton did just fine. Frum also discusses how this backfired in 2010, for example, for Republicans. He writes in quotes here, In 2010, Speaker John Boehner opposed the lunge and tried, largely in vain to control it. In both cases, the result was the same. A government shutdown in 95, a near default on U.S. debt obligations in 2011, and a conspiratorial extremism that frightened mainstream voters back to the party of the president. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it feels like the Republican Party, or at least a lot of the people in the House, are even more extreme and more conspiratorial than ever. And with slim margins in the House, Kevin McCarthy probably doesn't have the ability to have any restraint or discipline. I see his life being like John Boehner's, but worse. John Boehner was respectful. I like John Boehner. He actually had enough to work with Obama. He was much smarter, much more versatile. Kevin McCarthy's going to have a hard time, and I don't think there's a way that he can't bring the party further down the rabbit hole of extremism to, to appease the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses because he needs their votes. And they will likely oversee this and oversee some crazy investigation, and I think they're going to oversell it to the American people. You know, the midterm showed us that voters do not like the crazy. Again, I don't know if Republicans will learn from that because the crazies are in the House. You know, back to what Paul Ryan said, he's like, people don't want Trump. He's right, but there's a lot of Trump minions still in the House that have his same values. And, you know, at, at first I worried that the GOP taking back the House would lead to chaos. And I guess it will, but it also might expose how crazy the group is when they're overselling Hunter Biden and they can't get anything done. I just don't think that average Americans care that much. Of course, the Joe Rogans of the world and the culture commentators do, you know. I follow it. I follow the Hunter Biden stuff. But I don't think the average person cares when inflation, the economy, and more are at stake. And I could see, because also McCarthy said they're going to fight over the debt ceiling. They might try to cut <laughs> social programs. And they might be problematic in Ukraine. All that stuff might backfire. Now, the one thing I, I, I will say is that if they were going to do an investigation, the border is one thing they should do an investigation on. And I'm not pointing fingers in a partisan way because I think it's, you know, a both sides are guilty type of situation. But the border is in crisis. I do believe DHS Secretary Mayorkas has not done a great job. I do think that would be a more viable investigation. Maybe they will do it, but of course, they'll probably do partisan mudslinging as well because I, that seems to be all a lot of these Freedom Caucus type of members are really capable of doing. Of course, time will tell, but my hopes are not, let's just say, very high. Now, moving on, I want to get out of the U.S. 
and get over to the Ukraine area and discuss a rather troubling story that is evolving. Definitely evolving. It's been evolving for months, but it's more troubling than it's been, I guess is how I would put it. Months ago, we had discussed how the Zaporizhia nuclear plant was under Russian control. It's in Ukraine. We also noted that there always could be trouble with a meltdown of some form, especially when you have a conflict happening around a nuclear power plant. Not always advised, just a fun fact for you. Well, now it looks like some of these issues could be coming to fruition. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and say they are coming to fruition, but it is not good. Yesterday, Reuters had an article with the headline, Top Russian Official Warns of Possible Nuclear Accident at Zaporizhia. This is definitely a troubling headline to read when you know of the history of nuclear accidents in Ukraine, for sure. So, basically over the weekend, the head of Russia's state-run atomic energy agency warned that this facility, which is Europe's largest, by the way, of course, could be at risk of a nuclear accident after months of increased shelling, which I guess makes sense. It checks out. Now, I should note that there's been shelling there for months, and both sides have pointed fingers at each other. Ukraine says that, well and I probably agree with them, is that, hey, there wouldn't be any shelling if you hadn't have invaded our fucking country, <laughs> which makes sense to me. And then Moscow is also saying that, well, the Ukrainians are also firing at it. They don't want to have talks about securing the plant. I'm sure both are kind of true here. But again, like if Russia wasn't invading Ukraine and took over this plant, then we probably wouldn't have this issue. And so apparently over the weekend, the shelling intensified and there are new and renewed fears of serious issues coming down. Now, the score, like the story does get a little bit more alarming because the head of Russia's atomic energy agency, Alexei Likhechev, was noted as saying, the plant is at risk of a nuclear accident. We were in negotiations with the International Atomic Energy Agency all night. For some reason, those words do not make you feel good when you see we were in negotiations with the IAEA all night. Now things are also getting more complicated because over this period of time, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has called for the creation of a security zone around the plant. But, of course, to create a security zone around the plant, there would need to be negotiations with Kiev, and also probably the United States would need to be involved. And Likachev has said it would only be possible. Yeah, so he's kind of backed that up. He said it would only be possible if it's approved by the United States. Of course, this is complex as well, because from my understanding... Kiev is quite pissed off about this, rightfully so, like I said earlier, and I don't really imagine Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials supporting Americans discussing these negotiations with Russians, even though they, I guess they probably should, let's be honest, the nuclear meltdown would not be good. I'm not saying it's happened, but it wouldn't be good. But I guess the lead up to this was that Vladimir Putin ordered his forces to seize the plant completely back in October after after trying to take it and fighting happening for months. And since then, the plant has been operated by Rosatom, that guy, um, Likachev, um, or Likachev, sorry. Um, he is the one who runs Rosatom, and that's the name of that Russian company. It's being subsidized by the Russian government, and they've been controlling it. Now, if there's any silver lining here, and believe me, it's definitely not much, but we'll take what we can get. The, the UN's uh, nuclear watchdog agency, which we've talked about, has made it clear that at this time there is no, in quotes, immediate nuclear safety or security concerns. I mean, immediate's probably the key word there, but I guess that's better than nothing. 
But that being said, the organization also said that the scope of the damage, in quotes, is a major cause of concern as it clearly demonstrates the sheer intensity of the attacks on, the, on one of the world's largest nuclear plants, end quotes. Of course, yeah. Of course, there's gonna like there's fighting happening out there. Destruction is inevitable. Bad, just bad. And I think what is alarming to me is that both sides are firing on one another still, right? I mean, it's a war, so obviously I guess that's what happens. But at the same time, it's like, good God, you guys, like, do you understand the ramifications of this? Of course, they keep blaming each other, but either way, the outcome is the same, right? No matter who is actually doing more of the shelling, it doesn't really matter because the outcome's the same. The, the New York Times also has an article out today that notes and quotes here, a team of four inspectors that visited the plant on Monday reported no new damage to the outside power lines, but observed fresh damage, including to storage tanks and the main road running along the plant's reactors. Yeah, I mean, storage tanks isn't good. Definitely not good. I also don't want to get too doomsday here, but I watched 60 Minutes over the weekend, and one of the people the program interviewed was Rafael Mariano Grozzi. He is the director of the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, which we've, we've talked about a lot, the UN watchdog for nuclear bullshit. And I would not want that guy's job, by the way. I watched that thing, and I'm going, this guy has a lot on his plate right now. Definitely probably don't want his job, seems stressful, but anyways, he made an interesting point, uh, one that doesn't make me feel too great. He noted that the plant has a reliance on diesel generators, diesel generators, which can be seen as an unsustainable practice, especially when they're bombing the shit out of everything around it. And he says here in quotes, when your generators are out of whatever you put in to make them work, then what happens? Then you have a meltdown. And I think that is the biggest fear here is what happens if the fuel stops the machines from running, right? <laughs> That's not good. And I know I'm laughing, but it's Laughing's better than crying in this case, so, you know, <laughs> I try my best. But now, Grozzi has mentioned that he has talked with Putin, he's talked with Zelensky, but of course, this is going to surprise you guys, no agreement has been reached. Big, big surprise, I know. Like a lot of other aspects of this war, Putin is unhinged, he's nihilistic, he clearly doesn't care. I'm sure escalation in his eyes is fine. But I, I do think it's important to note, and I'm not, this is not a condemnation. I'm with Ukraine on this. But Zelensky keeps saying he will only negotiate with unconditional surrender when the Russians are out. And I understand that talking point. I understand why he supports that. But at least in the case of a potential nuclear meltdown at a facility, which I'm not saying is going to happen, but it could, maybe you should be willing to at least create a safe zone first before you tell the Russians to get out. Because let's be honest they are occupying it right now. And maybe I'm being too pragmatic here, realistic, and, but I, I just don't, I don't see Russia just leaving. So I also don't want to see a nuclear meltdown. We're going to have to keep watching that, though. Uh, every time I see the name of that town and the name of that plant in the news, I almost can guarantee I don't want to read what I'm seeing. And that's been the same for a few months. It's been the same now. So... Let's all just pray and hope that, yeah, that it doesn't get any worse. We will see. To add one more icing on the cake before we get out of the Ukraine-Russia invasion, there's one more thing to add on this cake of problems. 
It's another issue that caught my eye this morning, and it's that the World Health Organization has noted that a tragic and life-threatening winter could be on the horizon. And the BBC has a good update piece on it that writes in quotes here, The European director of the World Health Organization, the WHO, said the UN health body had documented more than 700 attacks on health infrastructure since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. Speaking in Kiev, Dr. Hans Kluge calls the attacks, in quotes, a breach of international humanitarian law and the rules of war, and warned that millions of Ukrainians would face life-threatening conditions over the winter. Going off of these statements, the WHO called for a humanitarian health corridor to help get supplies to those that need them the most. Of course, I mean, I think it's good. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to do that, right? We're going to definitely have to get aid there. Um, I really hope it does. But of course, the only solution here is that the war must come to an end. But I worry that's not happening soon. I really hope our international institutions do come together to give some relief to Ukraine because... You know, I was skimming just headlines from Ukraine, and maybe I'll get into this later in the week, or maybe not later in the week because of the, the holiday, but maybe next week. I mean, based on the atrocities that have been reported in places like Kherson now, Putin's willingness to indiscriminately bomb, the torture I've read about, the, the people that have been killed in Kherson, I don't think Putin would treat this well. Maybe I'm wrong. But either way, it's very depressing. It doesn't look good. I just hope that... I, I really hope that uh, they're wrong. I, I really hope the WHO is wrong. But if you think about it, a lot of these bombings have been in places that are just going to strangle the infrastructure, especially for those that need aid. And, I mean, it does seem time and time again like Putin just wants to make the situation so dire that maybe eventually they surrender or bend the knee. That's what it seems like to me. Anyways, before we're out of here, I will just add that on a lighter note, because I, I do want to end this on a little bit lighter of a note. I've been, I've been really enjoying, I've been really enjoying kind of the feud between people like Carrie Lake and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others about who's going to be Trump's running mate. Jesus, that was loud. Sorry, got some sort of dump truck out there. But anyways. I've really enjoyed, like, to me, it's a really good question. Is Obviously, Mike Pence is not going to be Trump's running mate, right? <laughs> Usually when you get a mob to almost hang your former VP, it's probably, like, severed ties, I would imagine. So to me, it seems like Carrie Lake could be one. Marjorie Taylor Greene could be one. I hate to say this, but if Carrie Lake actually won her, her uh, gubernatorial election, I think she would have been the best choice for his running mate. Maybe she still is. One has to wonder, though, if she's too crazy to pull in hesitant voters or independents onto her side. I guess it all just comes down to whether the Trump 2024 campaign is focused on getting new people to join them or if they're just focused on getting the base to turn out. Probably the latter. But it was interesting because Marjorie Taylor Greene was asked about this, and it's clear Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to be Trump's running mate, which I think would just fuck over the Republican Party if that's the case. But she was asked about Ron DeSantis and about Carrie Lake. Oh, it was a couple weeks ago now. And she's like, well, they should run their term before they run for, you know, vice president with Trump. I think trying to say that, no, Carrie Lake should not run if she's elected governor because she needs to be a hero and a patriot and do her time as governor. Well, Carrie Lake has lost. So now the question is, does Trump run with her? I mean, I don't like Trump. I don't like Carrie Lake, but I'm not going to lie to you. I think they would be an electric ticket together. 
They're both good at crowd control. They're both good at rallies. They're both like celebrities in a sense. They both have that same kind of conspiratorial but energetic look. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's a little too crazy and not in like a good way. I feel like Carrie Lake is kind of the, um, I had too many drinks at Martha's Vineyard type of vibes, which could appeal to people maybe. I, I, I don't particularly know, but I've been interested to see it because Marjorie Taylor Greene clearly wants it. Carrie Lake clearly wants it. I'm sure you're going to have some people like Nikki Haley that want it. Personally, if I had to say this is the guy I want to run for president, I would say I, I like Glenn Youngkin, or as Trump calls him, Youngkin, in a very racist slur against Koreans. But anyways, I like Glenn Youngkin the most. I don't like all of his culture war stuff, but if I had to vote for someone today, I would probably say Glenn Youngkin should run. He just appeals more to me than other people. But anyways, we're going to have to keep watching this because Trump eventually needs to pick a running mate. It was interesting to hear how he wanted to go with crazies in 2016 based on Maggie Haberman's book, but eventually Mike Pence was the right decision. What happens now that Trump has clearly severed ties with that wing of the party? Could he still win without getting that base? Is that base with him? There's so many questions, but those questions we'll need to answer at another time. So we are out of time. I want to thank you guys for listening today. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. I'll be back. What day is tomorrow? Wednesday. Be back with an episode tomorrow, Wednesday, and then we're off for Thanksgiving. So take care. Adios. And I bid you adieu.